Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 78, Emily Murphy, Brain-Based Memory Detection. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your guest host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. Our guest on the show today is Emily Murphy from the UC Hastings College of Law. Emily's new co-authored project, tentatively titled Brain-Based Memory Detection, takes our conversation on the podcast to the leading edge of evidence scholarship. How should our existing evidentiary regime respond to technological innovation and evolution? Is the Daubert standard sufficient for appropriately scrutinizing scientific evidence in the courtroom? My conversation with Emily today takes on these challenging questions by considering how they manifest in the context of brain scanning technology. To that end, the conversation today begins with an exploration of recent technological advancements related to both brain scans and memory detection, before we focus, in particular, on the theoretical implications of new technology in the courtroom. Emily, welcome to the show. Alex, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So your paper examines several lines of research that look for an answer to the question of whether it's possible to detect the existence or even the absence of specific memories. But let's first begin today by building up to that question. So what does memory detection actually refer to? You know, what kind of memories are being detected here? Thanks, Alex. That's a great place to start. And one way to define what we're talking about when we refer to memory detection is that it's not lie detection. It's not some sort of truth verification in the sense that it doesn't require any sort of overt response or deceptive response or lying of any sort from the subject. Instead, folks who have been working for now decades on memory detection type technologies tend to rely on something called the guilty knowledge test, where they're not trying to detect lies, they're actually trying to detect whether someone has information that would ordinarily be known only by someone who was involved in a particular situation. So what we're detecting is the presence or absence sometimes of a memory trace, kind of a recognition of something that would be known only to someone who has particular knowledge, and we could call that guilty knowledge, although it doesn't necessarily have to implicate criminal guilt. So let's dig a bit deeper here as well, because this is fascinating. So perhaps help our listeners out by describing some of the common theoretical bases of memory detection research. So memory detection research, the core theory that we're working from here is the idea that our brains are generally able to distinguish things that have happened to us, like an autobiographical memory having witnessed something personally, having participated in an event, generally speaking, our brains are pretty good at distinguishing those kind of experiences from all the other kind of memories we have. Episodic memories, like having learned about the event from your friend or having watched about it on TV, or a semantic memory of having information about the particular event from some other source. And we all know this intuitively, We're pretty good, not perfect, but pretty good at figuring out things that are true about our own lives 
and versus things that we've learned about in the course of our own lives. So we're interested in looking for autobiographical memories of particular episodes and events, but of course, there's many, many different types of memories. Not all of those are what the researchers working on memory detection have worked on. So Emily, thus far, what have been the major challenges to this memory detection research in the courtroom and in forensic practice generally? So this type of work has been proffered in a few U.S. cases and jurisdictions and generally not found to be admissible because it lacks scientific support in a forensic context. Now, there's decades and decades of research using guilty knowledge tests, and we can talk about the different types of brain-based detection or even physiological basis of detection that folks have worked with to figure out whether a memory trace is there or not, whether guilty knowledge is present or not. There's a lot of research on this, but in the forensic context, there's some challenging questions. For example, the time travel problem. If you can detect a memory that was created in a lab a week or a few days or even several weeks prior, is that going to be translatable to detecting a memory for something that happened 30 years prior? What kinds of details really matter? Maybe some a unique detail known to investigators is that someone was murdered on a paisley couch. Well, if that detail wasn't necessarily salient to the person involved in the crime, it may never have been encoded in the first place. There's a number of different translational challenges when anytime you're taking a technology or even just basic scientific knowledge from a lab context where you actually know the ground truth out to a forensic context where the ground truth is actually what's disputed. So before we really dive into those admissibility issues that you discussed, I want to follow up quickly on something that you just mentioned earlier in your answer, and that is these different forms of memory detection technology or these different means of identifying memories, perhaps. So your paper first describes EEG-based technologies to detect memories. So how do those techniques work? Sure. So EEG is an acronym for electroencephalogram, and an electroencephalogram is a technology that measures brain activity through the scalp. So someone who is undergoing an EEG exam, which is used clinically in epilepsy investigations and various other clinical applications, they sit comfortably in a chair and put on a skull cap with a lot of little electrodes in it and have transmitting gel applied through little holes in that cap so that they get better conductivity to their scalp. And then lots of wires are hooked up to it and they sit there comfortably and either look at or listen to some sort of stimulus and then generally make no overt physical response at all. This type of technology is actually a version of it has been developed in India and in 2009 and was used in an Indian criminal case where the suspect was described, her name was Aditi Sharma, and she was accused of murdering her fiancé, Udit, and she was taken to a police station, apparently offered the chance to be interrogated, sat quietly in a nice, comfortably air-conditioned room with a skullcap and wires. She listens to a series of statements that detailed some aspect of the murder that the investigators thought they understood and said not a word. She said, heard statements such as, I had an affair with Udit, I got arsenic from the shop, I called Udit, I gave him the sweets mixed with arsenic, and the sweets killed Udit. And she says nothing to any of these sort of slightly accusatory but autobiographical statements. 
the proponents of this technology analyze her brain waves detected from the surface of her scalp through a computer and report that their technique demonstrated that she had what they're calling experiential knowledge of those particular statements. That evidence was used in part to convict her. And Emily, what would the opponents, though, say? You know, what are what are some of the major limitations or challenges to EEG technology as it relates to this sort of memory detection? EEG specifically itself has sort of technological limitations, but there's also limitations, as we were talking about earlier, of any time you're translating basic science knowledge to the forensic application where you actually don't really know the truth. EEG itself it detects only superficial brain waves. So a lot of really interesting activity happens in the outer part of our brain called the cortex, but not everything. And the EEG can really only detect, I mean, talking amongst neuroscientists to say it's only scratching the surface of the brain. But while it has very good temporal resolution, it has not very good spatial resolution, meaning it's hard to know exactly where areas are coming from. It's also very biologically noisy. So in order to get a meaningful signal out of a lot of EEG data, a common technique developed over the years has been to develop something called the event-related potential, which is a particular spike or a dip in particular brain voltage activity that happens in response to a discrete event. And relative to the ongoing background brain activity, because our brains are humming along all the time, the event-related potential is really small in magnitude. So for any particular single event, that signal is difficult to discern from the background noise such that, for in terms of designing a test, you tend to need to repeat a number of trials. Typically, in the classic sort of guilty knowledge test literature, researchers are averaging EEG samples of repeated presentations of the same stimulus or of several stimuli within the same category to be able to extract a meaningful event-related potential signal from the background noise. And Emily, you also discuss in your paper, in addition to EEG technology, what's referred to as fMRI technology. So how does that work? So fMRI technology looks more deeply into the brain than EEG technology. FMRI stands for Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, and anybody who has had an MRI for any sort of medical reason understands kind of how this works. A subject lays down in a tube, sometimes more like a donut, but often like a long tube, and listens to a very loud noise, usually with headphones on, clanking and stuff. And what happens is it's a little complicated. We'll simplify it down. Essentially, FMRI takes advantage of the fact that there's magnetic differences between blood that has carrying oxygen and blood that has been depleted of its oxygen. So it uses magnetic fields and radio waves. So it's very safe. It doesn't, it's not invasive into anybody's body. Like just magnetic fields and radio waves to detect these differences in blood oxygenation. And in those differences are a close proxy for brain activity. So when neurons fire and use up energy, they also require oxygen, just like your muscles do. So oxygenated and deoxygenated blood, the, the different ratio between those is a proxy for neural activity. So instead of getting not just a sort of pretty structural picture of your brain, functional magnetic resonance imaging allows researchers to overlay on top of a structural picture of the brain maps of brain activity. Now, the 
really interesting stuff with fMRI actually has much more to do with the, how the data is being analyzed, not just where, how it's being collected. Now, Emily, we talked about the challenges or the shortcomings of EEG technology. What are the challenges to this fMRI technology? So again, there's some methodological challenges, and those are your most basic. Someone undergoing fMRI testing has to lay very, very, very still. So even slight movements of the head, swallowing, chewing motions could disrupt a brain scan. It's loud. It's kind of uncomfortable to be still for so long. Someone who's claustrophobic may have an issue with this, even though it's otherwise relatively safe. So that's one thing. It'd be very hard to do fMRI scans on anyone who was not absolutely willing to do so. The methodological issues are, the sort of scientific methodological issues are actually where it gets really interesting. Classic fMRI methods were looking at blobs in the brain, trying to figure out where there were clusters of brain activity that were either similar to or different from each other between different types of psychological tasks. And that type of analysis was revealing and did indeed show that there are unique differences between, say, for example, true and false memories. Brain areas activate in response test stimuli in a particular recognition task. There is some overlap, but also some differences, which sort of hinted at the idea that Biologically speaking, there might be some sort of distinction between memories that were true and memories that were false, but similar. Like We all have inaccuracies in our memories all the time. And maybe our listeners are familiar with just having a discussion with your spouse and both insisting that you are the person who remembered to put the something away or buy something at the store when it, it can't possibly be true that both of you did that thing. And yet, one of you has a false memory, although both of you think that it's true. So, but the question that kicked off this area of fMRI memory research is, can we look in the brain and tell? Can we look inside the brain and figure out at some essentialistic level whether someone's memory is true, as in veridical, or false? That do they look a little bit different? And the initial kind of classic fMRI analyses suggest that this might be the case. Those analyses are also somewhat limited. I mean, you can only look at chunks of brain in kind of two millimeter cubic areas, which contain thousands to hundreds of thousands of neurons. You can only look over time periods of a few seconds, whereas in EEG, you can look down at the millisecond level. The classic fMRI analysis paradigms are limited because we can't look quickly enough, because we can't look in small enough places, but they're also limited by the fact that there isn't like a memory spot in the brain. Memories don't exist in discrete regions. We don't have a filing cabinet of memories that each has its own unique card. That would be a really inefficient way for our brain to store memories. Instead, it seems like memories are encoded and then stored in kind of networks of brain regions. Rather than each having their own floppy disk, we have network or cloud-based storage where we can retrieve memories, and but also where they are then labile in the sense that they can be modified and changed. But it works better, we think, to look for memories across networks of brain regions rather in specific spots. So how do we do this when we have fMRI data? So these newer fMRI analysis methods are actually able to make use of these massive amounts of data by using machine learning algorithms to recognize what are essentially amount to subtle patterns of activity across the networks rather than 
enough activation in a local area so that we can detect a meaningful signal out of background noise. Instead of trying to figure out whether something's meaningful from the data sense by hoping that it's a strong enough signal in one area, we can look at the patterns in it using these machine learning algorithms. My co-author has been one of the pioneers in this research and has used machine learning classifier technology and started with lab-based experiments to determine whether the machine is able to determine, based on a person's brain data, whether they are looking at a picture of someone they have seen before or whether they're looking at a picture of someone they have never seen before. So they know whether it's a true veridical recognition or whether it's false. But of course, people make mistakes. And sometimes a picture of someone you haven't seen before generates the subjective experience of, yeah, that looks familiar. I think I know that person, even though you actually haven't. What turns out to be really interesting is that, from my perspective and from the perspective of forensic use, is that even though machine learning classifiers able to make use of this data are quite accurate, like in the 80, high, high 80s, low 90% sort of range of accuracy for classifying true or new or old faces, what they're not very good at, no better than chance really, is determining the difference between someone's true memory or false but subjectively believed memory. So the way I've sort of started to distill this down when I give a talk with visuals about this is with a meme of George Costanza, it's not going to be detected by a memory detection device if you believe it, which runs counter to the classic fMRI studies that I was speaking about a moment ago, where we thought there might be some biological dissociation between false but believed, false but experienced as true memories, and actually true memories. The way I'm reading the literature now, which is an expanding area in all these using fMRI and machine learning classifiers to process all that data, is that there may not be that biological difference. It may be that false but subjectively believed memories, those that are wrong but we actually experience as true, are biologically indistinguishable, at least at the level that we can look at it with powerful technology, from true memories. That, I think, is going to have some interesting implications. And Emily, I actually want to ask one additional question here because I find it fascinating, and then we'll turn to the courtroom setting. But as you describe kind of the forward-looking progress of this brain scanning technology, what does the future look like? You know, where is the development or the evolution of this technology headed? That's a really interesting question. I think we're going to see even better advances in the machine learning techniques, although that is outside my particular area of technical expertise. I think that what's the trickier part is going to be not so much the technological, but the methodological in terms of figuring out how well this works in the real world. So one thing that's lacking in the real world is a really strong understanding, kind of an almost an epidemiological understanding of how often do we have false memories? It's actually very difficult to study these things in the real world because we are all not walking around with video cameras all the time. There is some really interesting research where researchers deliberately attempt to implant false memories, such as putting Bugs Bunny in the context of Disney and people, which is of course impossible, people later recall that they saw a shook Bugs Bunny's hand in Disney. There's a number of these types of studies, but it's almost impossible to do 
a survey and figure out how often does this actually happen in real life. So how many of our memories of our autobiographical experiences are inaccurate? And complicating this as a study, because that data might ultimately just be impossible to collect, is the fact that we now understand that memory is, memory is very malleable. Memory is very flexible. We understand now that at a molecular level that once a memory has been sort of reactivated, you could think of that as bringing it to the front of mind, it becomes vulnerable. And in animals, if you inject things directly into their brains, or even if you do certain types of behavioral manipulations, you can erase memories that have been in long-term storage because they are what researchers now think is labile. They are vulnerable to erasure or modification. And again, this biologically makes sense as a capacity, right? Like if we were perfect computers who could perfectly record every piece of data we ever had, it might actually be very difficult to learn from our environment. Updating memory is a really important part of learning. Integrating into autobiographical past experiences, current experiences, or other recent experiences is how we make sense of our world. But what this means is that there probably isn't an engram, a real a particular memory trace that is indelible or something someone might claim is like a fingerprint in someone's brain. It's really hard to know to what degree and how much this happens in real life. So it's really hard to know when we're trying to do forensic memory detection, how sturdy things are that we're trying to detect. So you asked, where is it going next? I think that the biggest push currently going on in this area of literature well, there seems to be a division between the two different, a couple of different scientific camps. One seems to be driving at this forensic gap between figuring out what, whether lab-based detection of having people commit mock crimes, whether the rates of detection would translate to a forensic test. And there's various proposals going on to figure this out. The difficulty being, you don't always know that a conviction means that something really happened. The canonical test cases would be something like a, a wrongful conviction where you actually get definitive proof after the fact in the form of DNA evidence that someone who was convicted was not there. Then you actually know that things went wrong, but it's hard to do it forward looking. The other camp is folks who are doing this research using fMRI tend not to be as focused on driving this towards its forensic potential and are really still deeply interested in doing this research because of what it's revealing to us about the very psychological and biological nature of memory itself. Great. So let's go now to the heart of your paper, which explores the intersection of memory detection and the law. And as an initial matter here, you actually argue that focusing on the admissibility of brain science technology is kind of a, a missed directed endeavor. And largely, this is because you think that memory detection technology might simply not be admissible in courts anytime soon. So build that out, out for us, Emily. You know, what, what are your thoughts here? I think that if it got really good, if we could know that it had satisfactory error rates, if it met the Daubert criteria, it would be admissible. If we had a perfect memory detector, it probably would have to be admissible under current federal rules and probably most state rules. The problem is, is that that's probably not going to happen. But also, I, I take a issue with sort of driving toward the forensic use, and at least in the courtroom-based use, 
for some pragmatic reasons as well. So I'll go through those. One, we'd have to think about the limitations of the types of memories where this would be used. One would be what kind of memory are we trying to prove? We're trying to prove memory of an act or an event. What we have not seen yet in the literature is the memory of a mental state. So that act or event would probably need to be disputed, factually disputed, in order to pass Rule 403 or state equivalent muster. Otherwise, it would be just a waste of time to have brain evidence that proves an act that's proved by something else and therefore not disputed. So in cases where the disputed issue is intent and mental state, and we're talking now just about criminal cases, it's probably just not going to be that useful. And I think about this in the context of even in cases where you might think that someone has sort of a the most robust memory, such as they weren't under stress at the time they were involved in an act, such as say a mugging or some kind of street crime, Instead, you think of someone who's committing white-collar crime, who's committing fraud, where they have time, they look at multiple documents, they meet the same person multiple times, they might have a robust memory of things that are unique to that particular type of crime. In those types of cases, it is less often the case of what happened is really at issue, and even who did it. What happened and who done it are not usually the issue. The issue tends to be, what is the mental state? This just isn't going to be that useful there. It would probably be most useful in criminal cases of, let's say, coerced confessions, someone admitting to something they really didn't do and therefore shouldn't have an experiential memory of. But a really interesting experiment to do, because we just don't know, is does the experience of having a confession coerced from you create a memory in the sense that would be detected by a memory because it is false and yet subjectively believed by you because of the process of the coerced confession itself. We just don't know. It might be useful in the case of an eyewitness identification where someone is misidentified and the witness has an incorrect memory. But again, you'd have to be confident that the memory detection technology would be able to show you that their putative memory was in fact veridically incorrect. Not sure that's what it's gonna show. And another scenario where this might be actually useful in a criminal context would be an alibi that's lacking corroboration. So the defendant says, it wasn't me, but doesn't have anything else to prove that he or she was elsewhere, but they do have an experiential memory of a different place and time. Again, with someone who is motivated, it's entirely possible to think that they could create and falsify a memory that they subjectively believe. They could take a memory of an alibi from a different place in time and rehearse it as if it were it took place during the time of the crime. It's not at all clear to me that even in the cases where it might be legally most relevant to be looking at an autobiographical memory, we're talking about the mind run of cases, not necessarily the cases that law professors want to use as hypotheticals in a class. It's not clear to me that, first of all, that, that those cases are very frequent, or second, that the technology would be free from deliberate countermeasures and defeating it that way, or would be able to be, we'd be confident that even someone who wasn't motivated to engage in countermeasures, like creating their own false memory, that we'd be getting at a veridical and true memory rather than a false but subjectively believed memory. So the first pragmatic, I don't think admissibility is the right pursuit objection really sums up as, I'm just not sure it's as useful as people think it's going to be. 
although I understand the appeal of sort of courtroom dramatics. I also want to kind of touch on a related matter here, because you also suggest that Daubert and Rule 702 are necessary, but ultimately insufficient reliability tests for brain scanning technology. How so? The real hang up here for me is going to be is that it may actually be impossible to do what we would consider what scientists would consider to be really good validity testing in the forensic context where the ground truth is actually disputed and cannot be known. So for all the types of memory detection that have been published so far in the research, what is true is that the person doing the examining has to know something about the ground truth. They have to know what the truth is and that this particular person would have unique knowledge of it. It can't have been leaked. It can't be too general such that it would be familiar to someone who is innocent. It has to be a very particular and specific type of autobiographical knowledge. In the real world, performing validity testing to get error rates for that kind of knowledge is going to be nigh impossible. It's also possible that countermeasures and false positives may be unavoidable for things, reasons we've talked about, and also undetectable. So last couple of questions, Emily. What's next for the literature, and what are you still trying to develop in your project? I hope that this piece gives a framework for any U.S.-based judge who has offered this technology to assess where its strengths and weaknesses are, like how to do a really good job of gatekeeping. But I hope that what's next for the literature is truly more scientific development in the realm of trying to figure out how memory really works. And then using those understanding to inform jury instructions, such as we've seen in the case of eyewitness testimony. We now have states like New Jersey who have special proceedings and procedures and special jury instructions to educate jurors about the weaknesses in eyewitness testimony. We might need to be doing the same thing for all memory-based witness testimony for jurors, generally speaking, if as long as their job, their core job is assessing credibility. And one of the prongs of assessing credibility is to assess memory. If we can develop a broad societal understanding that memory is not like a video camera, that memory is vulnerable and fallible, I don't know what that means in terms of letting jurors trust or distrust witnesses who are testifying to, as to their own autobiographical memories. But I think that the advances we've seen in the structure of how these things should be decided and how jurors are educated, we've seen examples from the eyewitness memory testimony should be what these kind of scientific findings really motivate. In terms of my project, my co-work author and I are sort of splitting this into a book chapter as well as a law review article. The book chapter will be where most of the details of the science reside for those who are interested. But if our listeners have suggestions for a title, that seems to be a challenge for me. I had a, a great suggestion for a Harry Potter-esque title of Trial by Pensieve from one of our colleagues. But It's fantastic. I think so, too. But other readers who are unfortunately not as familiar with Harry Potter to their, you know, that's their loss, but they didn't really understand what that was about. And so if anybody has a, a title suggestion, I'm all ears. Well, Emily, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Alex, thanks so much for having me. This was a real pleasure, and I'm happy to have any feedback from anybody who's listening. 
Emily's paper gives us a wonderful opportunity to again consider how our evidentiary regime must evolve and adapt in response to technological innovation. Take, for example, emerging scrutiny of Daubert. Now, generally speaking, the Daubert decision was designed to usher in a new era for reliably regulating scientific evidence in the courtroom. Unlike the preceding approach under Fry, Daubert tasked judges with ensuring that scientific evidence in the courtroom is sufficiently reliable, that purportedly scientific evidence was indeed a product of the scientific method. But technological innovation, such as the innovation at work in the brain scanning technology space, is beginning to test the fault lines of Daubert. As you heard Emily mention today, Daubert focuses on reliability through validation. But that emphasis really only scratches the surface. In Emily's words, quote, surviving a Daubert hearing is necessary but not sufficient for providing adequate scrutiny of the basis for the expert's testimony. What is truly needed instead is intense scrutiny of the actual machine and technological processes that are producing evidence in these particular cases. That is, the process that produces the evidence is the key juncture for testing reliability. And indeed, a survey of recent evidence scholarship demonstrates that this is the direction that the evidence literature is headed. In addition to Emily's wonderful paper addressing this subject, for example, Andrea Roth's recent article in the Yale Law Journal also considers how to best deal with this so-called machine credibility issue. Ed and I, too, have a recent paper out in the Texas Law Review discussing the emergence of what we refer to as process-based evidence. Look for this fascinating trend in the literature to continue, most notably through Emily's wonderful paper on brain scanning technology. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, the University of Arkansas School of Law, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The producer is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host today, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. And I do hope that you will join us next time when we take on another work in the world of evidence and proof.